Welcome to CA Conversations. I'm Dr. Sarah Dreller. I produce this week's episode on how arts professionals contribute as contingent faculty. Columbia, that the magic of what happens in the classroom comes from being able to speak with people who know exactly what's going on with, you know, board management today or fundraising today or programming today or whatever the labor negotiations. Yes. That's where you get exciting interactions between lecturer and students. And the students then bring their current world experiences of those topics back and it becomes an exchange. If what you get is... That's Maggie Guggenheimer, Director of External Relations at Virginia Humanities. And she's speaking there with Ellen O, Director of Programs in the Office of the Vice President for the Arts at Stanford University. During their conversation... Maggie and Ellen describe how their rich careers in arts administration also eventually led to teaching and how what they've done in their non-academic professional work informs their pedagogy. Now, although their circumstances are different, as they talk, they discover that they have both encountered challenges teaching professional courses at liberal arts universities. But as you just heard, Maggie and Ellen have both remained passionate about exposing students to real-life skills in the classroom as a way to demystify the wider art world and open a path forward for a diverse range of voices. Despite the many problems with how the contingency system operates, this discussion highlights the compelling social justice role that professionals who teach part-time can play in advancing the mission of arts education today. This episode is part of a limited-run series about precarious academic labor that I have produced for CA Conversations. You can find them on CA's website and on iTunes. I've also created a companion website called Contingent Talk with extended information about the series. That's at contingenttalk.hcommons.org. I'll be back briefly at the end. For now, on behalf of Maggie, Ellen, the College Art Association, and myself, thank you for listening. Enjoy. Hi, this is Maggie, um, and I am on the line from Charlottesville, Virginia. Very excited to be speaking with an old friend of mine, Ellen O. Um, I've been teaching on and off in the Arts Administration Program at the University of Virginia um, and also online at UMass Amherst um, for the last seven or so years. And I currently serve as Director of External Relations at Virginia Humanities, which is a non-academic department of the University of Virginia. Um, my background prior to that was all arts all the time, and I'm looking forward to talking about how I got from there to here and hearing the same from Ellen. Maggie, it is so good to hear your voice. Um, it's been way too long, and I can't wait to hear more about your story and share a little bit more about mine. It's been kind of a, a crazy, crazy journey. Um, but I'm now at Stanford Arts, um, technically the Office of the Vice President for the Arts, and I serve as Director of Programs. Um, kind of in this role, I've created um, a couple classes just in the last three years or so, um, I've taught a couple classes um, in generally arts administration. So it's been an interesting new kind of change for me. Now, Ellen, um, you know, probably of all the people that we went to grad school with, you're not the one who would have been least likely, but the one that 
maybe I was most surprised to find out ended up in a position similar to mine, uh, simply because you did so many amazing, unusual things in the years immediately following grad school. I remember you you were involved in the Whitney Biennial. You helped um, extensively at Sundance Film Festival. Um, you ran your, your a, a nonprofit in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you just seem to have so this boundless exploratory um, kind of firsthand experience in the arts. And and I sometimes think of, you know, working at a university as being um, at times the opposite of that frontline engagement with the arts because of what we deal with in higher ed. Um, so I'm kind of curious to hear from you, how did you get from, from that um, maybe just on the outside, incredibly exciting arts administrator life to what feels sometimes on the inside like a um, less exciting life in the yeah. university, but I'm sure it's probably not at Stanford. How did you end uh, up there? Well, in one word, kids. <laughs> but um, yeah, I kind of was all over the place after grad school. Um, so, we, you know, I was in Utah and you came out to visit mm -hmm. uh, working in marketing at Sundance Institute, which was um, crazy and exciting and everything you would expect it to be for a couple of years and then missed California. So moved back here with my husband and I got what I had always thought was my dream job. And in many ways, it was my dream job um, being the director of Kearney Street Workshop, which is a really small interdisciplinary Asian American nonprofit arts organization. And so I did that for four years, but it was a tiny organization with one and a half to two staff members. So mm -hmm. I was doing everything um, and I had to give it 110% of everything I had. And I loved every minute of it. But, um, you know, I had to raise my own salary and I didn't have great benefits. Um, and then I had a kid. So I had no idea what I was going to do after that. And I just felt like I couldn't carry the weight of this 40-year-old organization on my shoulders. Um, and I needed to pass it along. But I had no idea where I was going to go. And amazingly, I never would have looked at a university. Like, that just never crossed my mind. Um, but amazingly, a friend of mine sent me a job posting for the Institute for Diversity in the Arts at Stanford, which I had never heard of before. And I read the job description and I was like, this is exactly what I do. It's organizing programs. It's doing mentorship with students. It's bringing in artists. It's, yeah, essentially creating programs and events for mm -hmm. students um, working at the cross section of art and social justice. And so I was like, this is a dream, especially because it doesn't involve fundraising. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and with a university backing, you know, it comes with amazing benefits and healthcare and all of that stuff. Yeah. So I was like, I probably won't get it. You know, it's this big institution, whatever. But I threw in my resume and two days later, the new executive director at Ida called me because I knew him through some former work and I had no idea that he was there. Wow. Anyway, it was all kismet. And um, so he hired me. So I was working there and it really felt like a small independent nonprofit in many ways in the way we functioned because we were the only two staff, staff people. Um, it functioned very much like a nonprofit in the way that I had been functioning before doing very similar types of work. Mm -hmm. But it was through that job that I started doing 
these professional development programs and that grew and grew and ended up kind of leading me to teach a couple classes. And it's, I, I think you're right when you said you never would have pictured me doing this because I never would have pictured me doing this. Uh-huh. You know, my, my sister's a professor, my mom's a professor, my brother-in-law's a professor, and I never wanted to teach. I've never had any desire to mm-hmm. teach. And I still kind of don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to hear more about which classes you're teaching and kind of how that fits into the student experience at Stanford and arts administration at Stanford and all that. But But first, I'll say that when you were talking about your role at the executive or at Kearney Street Workshop as executive director, there's a light bulb went off for me that you know, I've, I had forgotten that we were living a sort of parallel life in that phase too, because um, I left New York after working there for a year after grad school to come back to Charlottesville and run our local arts council, which um, that's right. I, yeah. And as, as is indicative of exactly the challenges you were talking about, that arts council is no longer in existence. It actually folded last year. Oh, wow. Uh, And I remember in my very first board meeting when I was, what, 25, trying to figure out what the hell I had gotten myself into, (laughs) I suggested that maybe folding the organization should be on the table since the budget was, you know, smaller than my salary is now. And it was supposed to be serving the whole, you know, Charlottesville area. Um, But at any rate, it... um, it was a wonderful learning experience and, and a dream job in a lot of ways, just like your experience was. And just like your experience when I got married and wanted to have a kid, it suddenly no longer fit my lifestyle. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm, I've already got a baby on the way. I don't need another baby. And so I yeah. don't to run a nonprofit right now. Um, and that was also the time when affiliation with the university came into my life, although in a slightly different way than it came into yours. Um, I had been asked by a fellow alum of our master's program, a man named George Sampson, who started arts administration at UVA. And I'm very happy to give him credit for that because it's really been a labor of love at this point over over a decade that he has um, poured his heart and soul into creating a, a track of classes for undergraduates interested in arts administration, which did not exist when I was an undergrad at UVA and absolutely would have wanted to major in it had, had it existed then. But when he had to get major heart surgery, he called on me while I was at the Arts Council to fill in and teach his two classes that fall, which were Principles and Practices in Arts Administration, which was uh, designed based almost solely on our principles and practices course at Columbia in grad school. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think it was arts marketing. Um, I had guest lectured for him, which is his general practice and one that I feel very strongly is important to arts administration that you bring in practitioners. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, in our conversation. But, um, you know, long story short, when he came back after surgery, there was some movement among other adjunct teaching staff and he gave me the permanent or quasi-permanent post of teaching arts marketing um, which he felt I was more suited for since I was younger and more active in the field as I was running a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. than he was. Now I was paid to teach as an adjunct uh, professor at that point um, or lecturer at that point because I was not you were external employee right. Mm-hmm. 
to then fast forward past this time that we talked about, this sort of becoming um, not no longer being able to manage a nonprofit as part of your family lifestyle. When I eventually got a job working for what was then Virginia Foundation for the Humanities is now called Virginia Humanities, I was shocked to find out that now that I was a full-time university employee, I could no longer be paid to teach. Um, and I don't know that we need to go into the nuances of that. Um, it has to do with overtime, and um, that's probably the same case for you. But I had this big dilemma because my brother, my oldest brother, who uh, has a business background, said, you never, never do something that you used to get paid for, for free. You know, that's just like a breaking a cardinal rule of, of professional development. Um, but I loved teaching so much and I loved interacting with the students so much that at that point, which was 2014, I continued to do it essentially pro bono. And, and what I got in exchange was a few hours out of the office. Is that kind of what you worked wow. out at Stanford? Well, not, I mean, it's it's a little bit different because I feel like your teaching role at UVA was a very different function than what you were doing in your job. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the classes that I have created are a function of my role. So backing up just a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. I was at the Institute for Diversity in the Arts and I had started this series called Art is My Occupation because I felt like students had no idea what it looked like. So how did you get there? What can I do? Uh -huh. Like they were just clueless because no yeah. one else, at, you know, in a university told them what it was like or you know, what steps you need to take. And again, as the same as you, I wish, I wish I had had somebody had told me that when I yeah. was in college, cause I had no idea. Right. Um, so I started the series and it became pretty popular. And then a couple years later, the organization that I'm in now, um, kind of like the umbrella arts organization for Stanford created a position focused on professional development in the arts. So mm -hmm. I moved into that position I and I was essentially creating programming from scratch around professional development. So mm -hmm. as part of that, I created a class because it allowed students to make more time for, make more time to take it in their schedule. Cause I was doing a bunch of workshops and pop-up events and Q and A's with arts professionals and students kept saying, you know, I, I really wish I could get there. I just don't have time. But if it's part of their class schedule, they carve time out for it yeah. and then they can dedicate it and then they can receive credit for it. So for me, it just felt like it was part of my actual job to do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it, yeah, I didn't feel like it was yeah. necessarily above and beyond what I was already doing. Um, I just needed to carve the time out, uh, you know, with the, all the other things I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, in order to do this. And it took a lot more time, honestly, yeah. than I expected it to. That's really interesting. And I think it marks an important distinction um, between our experiences in more ways than maybe meets the eye. So and this brings me to the online teaching, which if I if I weren't sort of diligent about incorporating into this conversation, I'd probably avoid the topic entirely because online teaching for me was such a, a poor fit. But basically, when I was between the Arts Council and Virginia Humanities, I continued to, to adjunct and I did um, some consulting locally. And at that point, um, a colleague of mine who had worked on the cultural plan uh, for Charlottesville and Albemarle County with put me in touch with UMass Amherst and said, you know, you teach arts marketing. 
they need an arts marketing online teacher. Um, and I said, well, sign me up. I need every bit of extra income I can get. And so my motivation at that point truly was to fill in this gap between jobs financially and also to potentially set myself up for a full-time teaching role at UVA, which at that time I thought was my dream. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought the more I can kind of build out my resume, the better. Well, what I found about online teaching at UMass Amherst is that most of the people teaching there were um, sort of full-time consultants in their field. I get that that's maybe a generalization, but they had a lot of time to devote to their teaching and they had a lot of time to devote to being a practitioner in the field connected to their teaching. So for example, the person that I inherited a syllabus from, which is another important distinction between our experiences in both cases at UVA and UMass Amherst, I inherited someone else's syllabus that I got to massage and sort of riff on and be creative with, but it took a lot of the pressure off because a roadmap was created for me by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these two syllabi for arts marketing couldn't have been more different. I mean, teaching online had to do with looking at statistical data for zip codes and sort of more scientific marketing strategy and UVA, because we're a liberal arts education, we actually had to deliberately avoid practical approaches to the subject matter and had to talk instead about theory, you know, the theory of connecting an artist with the public and um, the exchange and and the sort of different philosophies of, of community building. Um, it, so it it was almost as though they were two completely different topics, even though they were both called arts marketing. But anyway, the person that I inherited the, the syllabus from at UMass Amherst was worked as a consultant doing marketing for organizations, and so she was actively applying the, the work in her syllabus to case study examples, and she had a lot of time to help students develop marketing plans for their case studies that was the sort of final project for the class. And at that point, when I was juggling multiple teaching and pretty soon after my new job at Virginia Humanities, I had zero bandwidth for that kind of attention to students online. And Mm -hmm. the last thing I wanted to do with a two-year-old at home was go home and look at a computer screen for three or four more hours after I'd worked a full day and had like my barely two hours of time with my daughter. So the, the, the return on that investment, which was also strange because you were paid per student, which felt um, sort of awkwardly um, transactional to me, um, that became less and less over time. And I eventually said, hey, look, I cannot give you what you need a teacher to give these students because they really need someone who can be in here grappling with the material and conversing with them through the forums and other mechanisms for engaging students online on a daily basis. And I don't want to do it. Um, So that was one factor. And so I felt like had my job been more closely connected to that function, it would have felt more natural. Similarly, at Virginia Humanities, as this organization was growing and my role became much more about fundraising and marketing and legislative advocacy and working very closely with the board and became less about marketing, I felt farther and farther away from the content, that theoretical arts marketing approach content that I was bringing into the classroom. Um, Mm. And each year I felt sort of more, sort of both slightly more embarrassed that my syllabus was out of date because I wasn't doing 
the work of, say, social social media marketing act actively for Virginia Humanities, and I didn't have that rapidly changing track record or um, best practices to bring into the classroom. But my office, my Virginia Humanities colleagues, needed more and more of my time and attention here. And my time in the classroom was sort of positioned as a threat to my ability to commit fully to the goals of the organization, although no one said that directly, but it was implied. And the one leg to stand on I had was that because Virginia Humanities is a non-academic department of the university, we, we do have some obligation to collaborate with UVA students. Um, although the ideal way to do that would be to bring students into our programming, which involves radio production, folk life performances, uh, author readings, et cetera, things that are more broadly humanities-based. Um, so I've had to kind of navigate this sort of, it feels sort of increasingly separate worlds and worlds as George builds his arts administration program and Virginia Humanities goes through this leadership transition that need more and more time and attention. And the dream of becoming a full-time teacher in the arts administration program that I'd had years ago seemed more and more out of touch or out of reach rather. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's so many things I want to respond to in what you just said. Um, but yeah, online teaching seems like it would be really difficult. Um, I just, I can't imagine being able to relate to students in the way you need to through a computer. But um, the one thing that also struck me was you were talking about the difference between thinking about theory as opposed to practice. Yes. And it's one thing that's been a bit of a, I've, I've really had to navigate this at Stanford because, mm-hmm. you know, in a liberal arts university, their focus is history and theory in the art departments. Mm-hmm. Hard skills are supposed to be acquired outside of the classroom through internships or whatnot. And so me coming in and saying, I want to teach a class, a credit bearing class that essentially gives students skills like how to write a contract, how to write a grant, how to put together a marketing plan. I got some backlash and Mm -hmm. the departments didn't want to list the class. And it was, you know, it was a little bit of an uphill battle. Luckily, we had some structures in place where I was able to list the course under the Arts Institute, which was under our own umbrella. And the, some some of the art departments cross-listed it, um, and the students I got were, you know, from across discipline, not necessarily art majors by mm-hmm. any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but it 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 is this interesting debate whether this is something that should be in a liberal arts university. But my argument is, you know, why are forty percent of our students computer science majors? It's because there is a clear path to a career. You're, mm-hmm. you know, arming them with hard skills that allow and and networks and recruiters who just sweep them up into a job. Right. Of course, people are going to be scared of going into the arts because they don't know what it looks like. They don't know what skills they need. They right. they don't have the networks. They're not prepared. So, right. I'm trying to provide some of that because yeah. I feel like the arts as a field, an industry, it needs, it needs these smart kids. I mean, there's, there's so much to be done. And, um, just 
thinking about the nonprofit structures that are not necessarily working right now. Um, these are the these are the people who we need to come in and make change, yeah. um, and especially students of color. I mean, you if you look at the leadership across the arts right now, we need more diversity and we need more voices. And so, I'm trying yeah. like I'm trying to open some doors as much as I can. Um, yeah, I was thinking just that same thing, and that that is an interesting way that what we're talking about overlaps with the work of my organization, because what we've just launched here, or at least launched fundraising requests or funding requests for here is um, a an internship program for undergraduate students at historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs in Virginia, specifically for uh, learning historic preservation and digital humanities work around historic preservation, things like virtual tours of historic sites, many of which deal with African-American history in Virginia. Um, and my colleague who runs our African-American programs was saying, you know, as we began to um, really move the needle in our state's um, gross inequity between sites of significance to African-American history among the whole historical site database and the state, you know, we realized that there was a, just a profound dearth of historic preservationists of color. And mm -hmm. so there, and that's the same in the arts that we, we need to create a pathway for work in the arts at an undergraduate level for students of color, because we need to diversify the field desperately. And this is one of the only ways we can do that well. Exactly. And you have, yeah, you have to start at this point to provide them with the skills and the opportunities to get them, to, yeah, to get them there. So um, hopefully we can do some of that. Yeah. Um, yeah the yeah. other thing that I was, I wanted to ask you was um, about, you were talking about bringing practitioners mm -hmm. into, into the class as you felt like you were in your role, you're a little bit more removed from mm -hmm. the actual practice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of felt the same and I almost feel like I shouldn't even call myself a teacher. I feel more like a curator, curator. of this totally. course because yeah. I'm just identifying totally. great speakers and the best people who are really doing the work and can yep. do it and can present it and teach yep. it better than I can. Yep. So I'm just creating the map. I'm an organizer, you know. <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I've actually had extensive conversations with my colleague, George, who I mentioned created this program and is another alum from Columbia about this because, and it's so fascinating. I don't know if you remember, and I'm not going to go into detail just to keep it anonymous, but at Columbia, we essentially saw a transition between a practitioner-led program in arts administration to a more um, scholar or theory-based theory approach to the program in arts administration. Do you remember mm -hmm. that shift? And yeah. I, I really felt like the program lost a lot when that happened. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. So without kind of going down that lonely, lonely road um, of, of talking about your alma mater in terms that aren't glowing, because I think both of us had phenomenal experiences at Columbia and would want to praise it more than anything else, I will say that I've seen that same pressure here at UVA, and I've had all these conversations with George about it, because here's the interesting thing, and I think this is relevant to this this conversation series especially. When George was at Columbia, which was decades before we were, 
the program was in the college or the equivalent of what we call the college here at UVA at Columbia. And so he got an MFA in arts administration. Interesting. And we instead have an MA in arts administration. Now, it's very Uh easy to make the case at UVA that an MFA is a terminal degree because they have plenty of MFA professors in the art department. It's much harder to make the case that an MA is a terminal degree, even though George and I have the exact same degree, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? The same experience. Um, And when we have talked about my future as a teacher in the program, which, as I said, was my dream years ago, it became increasingly clear to me that the likelihood of that happening without a PhD, which, as you know, does not exist in arts administration, in arts right. was very slim. And I've spent years grappling with the question, do I want to go get a PhD? And every time I came back to no, <laughs> no, I don't. That's not where my passion is. My passion is on the front lines. And, and what it, would you be getting a PhD in exactly. if this is what you wanted to teach? Exactly. And and thinking that, you know, if we're, if I believe sort of fundamentally, as we've sort of noted from our experience at Columbia, that the magic of what happens in the classroom comes from being able to speak with people who know exactly what's going on with, you know, board management today or fundraising today or programming today or whatever. the Labor negotiations. Is. Yes. That's where you get exciting interactions between lecturer and students. And the yeah. students then bring their current world experiences of those topics back and it becomes an exchange. If what you get is somebody who's really focused on writing a paper and sitting in their office, you know, publishing or perishing or whatever the, you know, adage is, then we're, you know, we're not going to get those kinds of sparks. And so I fundamentally disagree with the whole idea. And this is sort of a side note, but it did, a light bulb went off for me when it happened. When we were hiring our new executive director at Virginia Humanities, which was 43 years after the organization had been founded by our founding director. So the first time essentially in four plus decades that they had to hire somebody to run the state humanities council, the higher ups at UVA were discussing what the job descriptions should look like. And and someone in the provost's office said, and I'll never forget Let's be careful about whether or not we want to require a PhD for this position because you will get people, especially women, self-selecting out of the running because they don't have it when they could Mm -hmm. be some of the best candidates for the job. And I thought that's exactly what would be happening to me in arts administration. I mean, I may not be the best candidate for the job, but I certainly feel like I'm a good teacher. Mm -hmm. But I, I wouldn't even allow myself to be in the running if they said I had to have a PhD. Yeah. Do you get any pushback at Stanford for not having a PhD in teaching? I mean, not in my role uh, and the couple classes that I've put together, but there is no way that they would ever hire beyond or, you know, um, make this a regular part of my job, I guess, Mm -hmm. or acknowledge me as a, I mean, it would be a lecturer I would never be seen in a professor role mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, there's hierarchies and it comes with having a PhD. Yeah. Um, one other topic I wanted to be sure to get to because I'm so curious to hear how it plays out in, in your on your coast. Um, and that's that, you know, I think the one real kernel of value or the primary kernel of value I brought to the classroom when I was straddling my role as an, as an administrator um, in a relatively, you know, disconnected uh, department 
with my role as a teacher was that the opportunity to bring students directly into case study examples of our work. So getting them to write a marketing plan for our annual Virginia Festival of the Book or getting them to help me implement this public art project where we selected quotes from a, um, the text, The Fire This Time, and power washed them into sidewalks. Um, you know, actively involving students into those projects was something that I really felt that, you know, you could not replicate from the sort of traditional teacher going back to his or her office model, that it was provided only because I was an adjunct um, teacher or a, a, pra a practitioner teaching part-time. Do you have examples of that at Stanford where you're bringing students into hands-on projects? That was a, that was essentially the focus of the first class that I put together. Mm -hmm. um, so I partnered with Yerba Buena Center for the Arts mm -hmm. and oh, in San Francisco. That. And yeah. um, I got three colleagues from uh, YBCA to work with me. Um, one was in their community engagement group. One was in performing arts and one was in visual arts. Mm -hmm. And essentially we divided our class into three groups. So they would work, each group would work with one of the YBCA staff people as a mentor. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of, um, throughout, the, throughout the quarter, they were developing a project that the students were going to lead at YBCA. Mm -hmm. um, and then that was peppered in with lectures about contracts and development and marketing and you know, arts law and copyright and um, all that other fun stuff mm -hmm. that they would then try to apply to the project that they were developing. Mm -hmm. So that at the end of the quarter, we had three events in the city yeah where the students were really front and center and leading wow. and they got to see this whole project yeah. through in a and real arts organization. They have tangible evidence of their work, which is so hard to, to do in a classroom environment, you know, with a term paper. Exactly. But it was a huge commitment to them and, and uh, the time that it took to get up to the city. So it was a lot. And yeah. for a, a two credit class, you know, the yeah. feedback was that was a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they had a good experience, but the next year I, I changed the model a little bit and I felt like it wasn't as successful because there wasn't the really direct mm -hmm. hands-on component. Mm -hmm. So I'm, t so I'm experimenting with a new class cool. this quarter because so the arts and context class that I did for two years, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in a bit of a new role with, with a larger scope and I felt like I didn't have time to do it this year. So I'm, I've hired two artists to do a couple, a series of workshops instead, kind of in lieu of that. So that is still happening this spring, mm -hmm. but at the same, in the meantime, I'm collaborating with BEAM, which is our career education program on campus to do a class called industry immersion. Um, focused on television and film. So we're bringing in speakers who work in TV and film from development to distribution to show their roles. And the thing that we're really emphasizing is, you know, it can be a half hour lecture, but we really want the students to have a hands-on experience to see what entry-level work in your field or in your role looks like. Mm -hmm. So the first class we brought in a TV writers uh, showrunner wow. who created a writer's room in the front of the room and students would rotate in and she walked them through like they developed a pitch for a story. Um, so cool. 
for um, a TV series that she works on. And it was really exciting and really interactive. And it really gave you a sense of this is what it looks like and this is what they do. And how would they know that otherwise? So that's the piece that I think is really important and really key. Yeah, that that anecdote just touches on some concluding thoughts, which is it makes the process more dynamic for the teacher and the sort of need to constantly evolve and respond to the students' needs and and build those real relationships with community partners, um, which is stimulating for us personally. It's also an amazing service to provide the, the students, not just the real world application, but the contacts. You know, you're giving exactly. them networking. I think that the that kind of engagement opportunity is proof of this sort of personal um, value to both teacher and student that contingent teaching provides. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Thank Maggie, you. It was it was so great to talk to you. Yes, I loved it. And it seems like a conversation had years ago. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out the College Art Association's website or iTunes for more great conversations. And for extended information about my series on precarious academic labor, remember to visit the companion website called Contingent Talk. It's at contingenttalk.hcommons.org. Cheers. This is Sarah again. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out the College Art Association's website or iTunes for more great conversations. And for extended information about my series on precarious academic labor, remember to visit the companion website called Contingent Talk. It's at contingenttalk.hcommons.org. Cheers.